This is Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast with John Bacon. This is the place where people from all walks of life share their anxiety stories to remind you that you are not alone. If you have an anxiety story you'd like to share, contact us at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. You are listening to Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast, which can be found on all of your popular podcast platforms and at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Margaret Chisholm, who is the Vice Chair of Education, Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. There, she is also a Professor of Psychiatry, Behavioral Sciences, and Professor of Medicine. Dr. Chisholm is also author of From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness, which is coming out next week. Hi, Dr. Chisholm. Hi, John. Thank you so much. You can call me Meg. Okay, Meg. Uh, Thanks for being on. I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion. Yeah, very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, Meg. So what's your anxiety story? Oh, well, how how far back do you want me to go? (laughs) As far back as you're comfortable with. (laughs) No, I was I was a kid who didn't like to eat ice cream cones. I wanted my just the cone because I was so anxious about the dripping. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when I think about anxiety, I think about the different kind of uh, sources of anxiety. And I think some is just temperament. I haven't a relatively anxious temperament. I'm, I feel things very strongly. Mm -hmm. I uh, think a lot about the past and the future. I'm not the kind of happy-go-lucky type uh, by nature, although I try to temper my responses and thoughts to, to, to enjoy life a little more, but yes. Trick. Yep. So, and and the other part of my anxiety story happened after the birth of my child, I had postpartum depression uh, which would really uh, manifest itself with a lot of anxiety. I was, you know, worried that I was, a, you know, not doing a, a good job as a mother. I was worried that something was going to happen to the baby, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was it was high anxiety, and it actually was contagious. It spread to my pediatrician, who, you know, he's supposed to give a heel stick for uh, lead poisoning. I lived in an old house that had been renovated, and he was like, "Oh no, the baby's." you know, I don't want to do this to the baby. He did that on a home visit. I'm like, you're the, wow. supposed, you're supposed to be the doctor here. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. Uh, I have anxiety from multiple sources. Yeah. So um, it sounds to me like, it, you know, you've got you, you are deep within this discipline as a psychiatrist, um, and an author. Um, did, did your experience as a child, like what, inf- what informed you or what kind of guided you into what you're into now? Oh, I didn't want to go into psychiatry at all. In fact, my I have tell the story of my book, my brother who actually passed away from suicide about 10 years ago, he um, had psychiatric problems beginning at a really early age with ADHD and, and learning disabilities and things like that. But then that morphed into a full-blown mood disorder and uh, addiction. And he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and prisons. And so it was a, um, psychiatry was the farthest thing from my mind uh, because I hadn't really um, appreciated uh, the care that he got Mm -hmm. (laughs) mildly. Mm -hmm. And it it was just something that was the last thing on my mind when I went to medical school. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, I've, I've done some research on your book. Um, and uh, this book that's coming up, um, you talk about 
doctors uh, providing a more uh, holistic clinical care for patients. Can you talk a little bit about what that what that means? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of anxiety uh, as an example. Mm-hmm. So you know, and there are different uh, origins for mm-hmm. someone's anxiety, right, or their anxiety disorder. They could have a disease like uh, obsessive compulsive disorder or panic disorder, which, you know, we have a lot of indirect evidence of how those are diseases. Sometimes they happen after strep infections in the case of OCD. Uh, Sometimes you can reproduce panic disorders by giving certain infusions of uh, different substances. So so clearly there's some anxiety disorders that are uh, diseases, but then some Anxiety is from temperament, you know, your personality, like I described, I was sort of always somebody that worried a lot about the future, thought about the past, uh, felt things really strongly. So those are two ways uh, that you can explain anxiety, uh, either as a disease or as a um, part of your personality. The uh, third way is it could be because of something you're doing behaviorally, like you could be using substances that exacerbate anxiety. Caffeine, for for instance, will make my heart race Um, or, um, you know, uh, certain drugs like methamphetamine or cocaine or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth way that, you know, anxiety can originate is because of um, life encounters, things that you've encountered in your life that have, you know, been experienced as traumatic, you know, traumatic events. So, mm-hmm. so the way that uh, I was trained at Hopkins and the way we train everybody at Johns Hopkins to think about patients' problems that they bring to us is from these four different perspectives. You know, how much can be explained as a disease, something that's come upon somebody that has an origin in some kind of broken function or part of the brain, how much is is an, uh, can be explained by their personality, their affective temperament, you know, the strength of their feelings, that kind of thing. How much can be explained by something that they're doing, like uh, you know, using drugs or you know, drinking too much coffee, and how much can be explained by something that they've encountered in their life? And these all interact with one another. Mm-hmm. Not, not all are present in everybody, but there are different ways of understanding these um, problems that people bring to us. And you can't just ask people a checklist of, you know, signs or symptoms to really understand that you have to get to know them as a person, get to know um, their personality, get to know what's happened to them in their life in order to come up with a, a holistic formulation of, uh, of, of their problems and how best to treat them. Right. So it's interesting because uh, I mean, I've, but the first time I saw a psychiatrist for anxiety, I was probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in there, um, which was something back in those days. We're still talking about the late 70s. Yeah. Um, and, and and then I saw one again in the early 90s. And it was it was a lot of talk therapy. The, the ones that I've seen more recently, um, and I'm not trying to knock, I'm not knocking the discipline, but it seems like it's evolved a little bit because the ones, the ones that I talk to now, I have a counselor I talk to, and then um, psychiatrists kind of dispense medication. But what you're talking about sounds like kind of the model that I was used to back in the 90s, where you're actually, you know, talking and getting into the, you know, into the personality types and and the lives of the people you're working with. 
Yeah, psychiatry has changed mainly because of, I think, market forces more than anything mm-hmm. um, in terms of reimbursement for visits. Uh, you know, a psychiatrist can make a whole lot more money if they see people for five or 10 minutes <laughs> rather than for a half an hour, an hour. Right. Uh, I, you know, still see people for a, a, a minimum of a half an hour visit, a maximum of two hours for the initial visit. So, mm-hmm. Um, so I think market forces have played a role. I think the fact that there aren't enough psychiatrists to go around also yeah. plays a role. Yeah. So, you know, there are limited resource um, insurance reimbursement mm-hmm. is a, another issue. So there are a lot of forces at play. I think the DSM is a force that mm-hmm. has uh, made psychiatrists more focused on diseases and medication dispensing rather than getting to know their patients as well. So when you get to know your patient, you're talking about this sort of uh, holistic approach. Um, what does what does a holistic approach look like? Um, you know, let's say you found you've you've kind of found a direction with with a patient. Um, what kind of steps would you take with the patient? You know, is medicine a part of holistic approach, or is that not a part of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I usually spend two hours with a patient. I first ask them if they've ever seen a psychiatrist before, because what they're going to experience with me might be a little different from what they've experienced with other psychiatrists. So I do ask them that. And then I give a little role induction. I say, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. I'm going to start with your family history. I'm going to move forward in time. And um, the goal is to be able to have a better understanding of what the you know, not only what, how best to treat them, but in order to understand how best to treat them, I need to understand sort of the nature of their problems. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and so I ask a lot of questions yeah. and I usually get uh, an outside informant, a family member, or some friend who can, um, because sometimes people have a, a skewed view because of psychiatric uh, illnesses, they of can course. have a, a skewed view of their own experience. So I'd like to get uh, the voice of someone else to come in and answer some questions and then with the patient there, of course. And then I um, will kind of go through my formulation and say, well, I think, you know, this is, you know, part of this can be explained as a disease, part of this can be explained by your temperament, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then I ask them, you know, what their thoughts are about that. I also ask them if there's anything I need to know that I haven't asked them. And they usually laugh because it's been a very exhausting yeah, of course. time. Um, and then we just work collaboratively and I prioritize them. You know, it depends on the person. If they're in the clutches of obsessive compulsive disorder, they're not going to be very available for psychotherapy, I think, uh, initially until that gets under control because they're, that's all they can think about is the, mm-hmm. you know, they're, these intrusive thoughts that they're experiencing. It's like trying to meditate in the middle of a panic attack. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so I'll, I'll prioritize based on, you know, what needs to be done to make, help them be more available for psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, um, with your patients, what do, when they're, um, you know, once you've worked with them this way, are they kind of, are they set up to work on their own or do you see them regularly? How does that work? It really varies. Yeah. So, you know, some patients have therapists besides me, so they may be after our, they get over some, whatever, if it's a disease and acute 
problem like that, they might see continue to see their uh, their regular therapist. Other times I continue to do the psychotherapy with them. Sometimes people prefer to do things more on their own. Um, I might refer them to group therapy. Some people uh, would like that. It really varies. It's it's very individualized, it's a, a personalized approach. Yeah, and it's I, done collaboratively. Right. I I I I've done group therapy before. I've found it very valuable. Um, but I also did for the first time, sort of more recently, um, had that other person come in and give their perceptions of me, and I found that to be really valuable. Um, and it also helped in knowing that there's somebody there who actually knows me, you know, it made a yeah. big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think that's one of the biggest oversights that most practitioners make is not engaging with the family or loved ones. To, mm -hmm. I, I saw a patient, he's given me permission to share this story. I've been seeing him for 30 years. Um, not that, not every week anymore, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but he saw a therapist for, I want to say almost a year to talk about the affair that he was having and how guilty he felt um, until finally um, his wife intervened and said, look, we work together. <laughs> yeah. you know, I work at his business. We're you know, joined at the hip. He has never had an affair. And it was a delusional depression. Wow. And so, you know, that could have saved him so many months of struggle and suffering if she had been brought in and her perspective had been shared. So he thought he was having an affair, but he really wasn't. No, he was just feeling guilty because yeah. of the depression. Um, and it was distorting his thinking and his memory. I mean, there was no, no nothing, no affair mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've mentioned depression a couple of times and you mentioned postpartum depression leading to anxiety. Do you feel like those, those two are, are always together as synonymous? No, I, I mean, I think different people are different. I do think that anxiety can be uh, a symptom of depression, mm -hmm. uh, especially if people are prone to anxiety mm -hmm. uh, at baseline. But I think that uh, they have, you know, some, uh, some people have, to these are totally separate phenomena. Other people, they're intermingled. So mm -hmm. but sometimes it's very hard to, and thank goodness, most of the treatments are pretty similar. So. Yeah. Um, so the book, it's so I, I, it seems like it's written to sort of help people sort of start to finish with their with their anxiety experience. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm really intrigued. What I'm intrigued by is this concept, and it's something I only glommed onto recently. And I wish I had thought of it earlier. I had been, even in spite of myself for many, many years searching for a cure. And, and while I was doing that, I was actually generating more anxiety in myself. You know, it, it almost became an obsession trying to heal my anxiety, which of course yeah. fed on itself. Um, but there's something about this integrating into your lifestyle and, and, uh, and achieving acceptance with it. it the, is that the kind of thing you will, you touch on in the book as well? Uh, absolutely. So, you know, one of the ideas in the book is that you can have these problems that uh, interrupt your trajectory in life. And sometimes you can get back on that trajectory and other times that's not going to happen. I, I have a patient that I also um, had permission to write about who had um, depersonalization, derealization disorder after uh, 
taking uh, uh, larium, which is an anti-malarial drug. Oh, yeah, it was it was well yeah well documented <laughs> back in the late nineties for sure. Yeah, so she developed this, and she's still not better completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's better. She's still not back to her usual self. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's gone on to live a very productive life, and she just had to kind of adjust. Um, you know, her expectations around that. I think sometimes these illnesses can actually help us lead even fuller lives than we would have. This this happens a lot with addiction, for instance, you know, people that get into recovery actually are doing a lot of inner work and end up being better people than they would have been perhaps without the addiction. I'm not wishing that on any addiction on anyone, but sometimes there are these silver linings um, so the book really does focus on not just getting people better from their acute symptoms that brought them in, but helps supporting them to uh, to stay well and to reach their fullest potential, regardless of their illness. Yeah, I certainly found it liberating when I reached that point and realized, okay, uh, this is something that I that I have and I'll I'll have for the rest of my life. Uh, but it really uh, took a lot of pressure off. Um, trying to heal, trying to get fixed, trying to get get a quick fix, and um, just understand that you know these emotions come and go, and anxiety comes and goes, and depression comes and goes. I've experienced all of that a few times in my life, uh, so it certainly can be a powerful healing tool. Exactly, I think you know that's one of the great things about mindfulness uh, practice, mm-hmm. as well as uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, is that. You know, you can notice this and accept it and not struggle with it. And it really does free you up mm-hmm. to um, to be. It really does free you up to lead the life that you want to live. Yeah. Could you uh, it's interesting that you're the first person that's mentioned DBT to me um, because I'm you know well versed in CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I find it very handy. Um, what what is the difference between CBT and DBT? Well, I might be going a little out of my area of expertise here. Um, uh, My understanding, uh, so CBT is pretty straightforward. My understanding of dialectical behavioral therapy is it's more, um, it has more in common. It's sort of, so my understanding of DBT is that it's kind of in between mindfulness practice and CBT. Right. And so it's, it's a more contemplative kind of therapy so that you are, uh, uh, turning your attention to the feelings, mm-hmm. but not um, just letting them pass and wash mm-hmm. over you. Yeah. Um, and so it's a way of disengaging a little bit from the intensity of the feelings. Yeah, I, I guess I've done that in spite of myself or started doing that more recently. Um, so another thing I'm curious, quickly curious about um, is uh, this, the role of medication. Is medication something you still use um, as a psychiatrist? Um, is there a time and place? How do, how do you look at medication in those terms? Oh, absolutely. I use medication frequently. I mean, a lot of people are coming to see a psychiatrist for their problems because they're open to taking medication. Right. Yeah. So yeah. although for a long time, I had a string of people coming to me and the first thing they said was, I don't want to be on medication. And so then I do my whole intake, uh, you know, my evaluation yeah. and I'd say, okay, well, I know you don't want to be on medication. So here's some other options. And they'd say, oh no, I'll be on medication. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, okay. It turns out I was on some list at Hopkins of, of psychiatrists who were willing to work with people who 
didn't want to take medication. That's why I was seeing so many <laughs> right. of these people. I was, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, I, I certainly use medication. I'd, I'd say it's uh, not that everybody I see has a disease, but sometimes medications can be helpful for uh, even for problems that have their origins in personality or mm -hmm. in are, are better understood mm -hmm. as life encounters. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I, I'm looking forward to your book coming out. I'm looking forward to getting a copy. That's from Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness, which can be found on Amazon and is coming out next week. Uh, Meg, thank you so much for talking to me. It was invaluable and the work that you do is invaluable as well. Oh, thank you. It's really a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Okay, we'll chat again later. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to our anxiety stories. If you'd like to support this podcast or Anxiety Canada, go to anxietycanada.com.